Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days Just representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives So excited to have Charles Moore on the podcast today As you'll hear, he was somebody who was working hard in finance had dedicated his life to that pursuit, but ultimately it grew stale for him, both physically, mentally, and emotionally. And ultimately he decided to make a huge shift in his life. He went from being a very unactive, inactive, inactive person to someone who ended up running 18 marathons in three years, a enormously difficult challenge, but he did it. He ran all across um, all across the world, and he was, has a lot of reflections to take from that, and I couldn't wait to hear all about it. Also, he had a professional shift as well. We are a running podcast, but at the same time, the vast majority of you listeners also have professional lives and careers, so we talked about that as well because he had a huge professional career shift and still got a little bit of that COVID brain. Not quite saying the things I mean to, uh, but ultimately, yeah, he had a huge career shift and um, it was into, into the art world from the finance world. And considering all three of those elements, the finance, the art, and then the running, we also talked about representation and availability. And those are big things uh, in the running world. And we couldn't, I couldn't wait to talk to him about those and how he's chronicling all of this for a new book that is part of the Tracksmith Fellowship Program. So here we are. Let's talk to Charles Moore. All right, we are back with Charles Moore. Charles, I feel like I just came out of a sabbatical. I had a week off. Going on vacation with my family. I had a week off COVID. Hopefully, I remember how to do this. I appreciate you coming on and being a part of it. Awesome. I appreciate you having me. This is really exciting. I've been thinking about this for a couple of days, exactly where to start off, because you have a, a rich and textured life. I, I want to talk about so much of it. I guess we could just go right to the project that you're working on as part of your Tracksmith Fellowship. Let's just say what that is, and then we can kind of pick up in different spots from there. Yeah. So, um, you know, I started running in 2016 and I, I ran what I think is is a, a lot of marathons within a three year period. I ran 19 marathons. Cosine. And there's definitely a lot. <laughs> and so and, and I think it's it's especially a lot for someone who started at age 40 and who wasn't particularly a ru runner and not even a fan of running, actually, prior to that. Um, but I did it, and it seemed like the more and more I told the story in the aftermath, people would say, "You should write a book about this." And I thought, "Yeah, no one wants to read this." So I, you know, I didn't think about, I, I didn't think anything of it. So I just kind of let it brush off my shoulder and kept it moving. Um, and then one day I was meeting with a friend, and we were actually, I was interviewing him. He was an artist and I was, we were starting the interview and he said, wait, I don't want to talk about my art. I want to talk about you. And I was like, okay. And he was like, let's talk about this 19 marathons. And I thought, well, okay, all right, let's talk about it. And so, you know, 10 minute conversation or so, and he just gave this impression that he was 
so fascinated with these marathons that I run. And the last thing he said was, you should write a book. I would definitely read that book. And I thought, okay, no, he definitely would not read that book, but okay. <laughs> and the very next day, I got an email from you Chuck Smith. You understand the popularity of amateur running <laughs> memoirs, right? There's so many out there. It's this huge right. genre of, of a book right. collection. Right, right. And the next day, I got an email from Tracksmith saying, inviting me to apply to this fellowship. So I thought, okay, I'll apply to this fellowship that I definitely won't get. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's kind of how the project started. I love that. I love that. All right. So let's talk about where you were professionally in 2016. So we'll talk about where, what you do now. You're on a very different track. Um, but tell us where you were personally and professionally um, before we dive into you know the reasons uh, why you started running. Um, personally, you know, we you know people always talk about these midlife crises, and and I don't I don't I didn't think I had one, um, and I was professionally working as a financial advisor for Northwestern Mutual. And I, it was the start. I had been there for two years or so. Everything was going great. It was going so great that I decided to take a trip to Monte Carlo to see the Formula One race. And I was turning 40 that year um, in that August. And this was to be my birthday trip. So I was on that trip and I was having a great time watching the race, enjoying South of France, and it was wonderful. But I just had this feeling that I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing in life. And so, because you were basically, you were in paradise. Yeah. You were in paradise. Yeah, and all of absolutely. a sudden, you're like, well, you know what? This, something's going wrong here. Right. Right. And, I, you know, and, and, and it didn't happen immediately. But when I returned to New York City, I knew I was I was changing my life in some way. I didn't know how or wh why or what, but I knew that that was the start. And the, and then I decided that I wanted to start a hedge fund investing in art. And I applied to a program at Harvard University that was a museum studies program um, that was a two year master's program. That I ended up starting in 2017 and finishing in 2019. Gotcha. All right. So I have friends who've done the the track that you were on, the financial advisor track. You know, and then you basically you know, you every firm is different, but kind of bringing people into the funnel and and things like that. And then ultimately, it's a very demanding job. It requires a ton of outreach to new clients as well as retention of current clients, and you're just constantly communicating and trying to cast a wide net. Uh, it's a very demanding job. It's also very metrically driven for you. Does that, was that a, an arena that you thrived in or was that something that ultimately was a burden for you? I thrived. I, you know, I'm, I'm good at networking. I'm very good at um, all the traits that are required to be successful in that type of business. And I always enjoyed the financial markets. So, you know, having those type of conversations were very easy and they were fluid for me. Um, I'd been following the market since I was 16. And so I was very well versed on the, the ups and downs and historically speaking, um, things that have occurred in the market over the last two decades. So I was, you know, I was doing quite well. All right. So what, looking back now, 
few years later and hopefully you know your recollections you can, can think about these things with you know hindsight is 2020 uh type vibes but when you look back on it now what about your life either was going in a direction that you didn't appreciate or maybe just there were things that were missing or maybe there were things that were present that you weren't a fan of could you pinpoint now what was adrift oh absolutely um i always kind of prided myself on the diversity of my reading um over over my over over the course of my life and but what i what i also realized that i needed to be doing something on that level in that in that area uh every day and so you know being a financial advisor wasn't really affording me that um type of reading type of of intellectual exploration that i needed and 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 that was really the 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 culprit of the change, um, you know, like, you know, throughout my life, I, I've always read things like Sigmund Freud and Dostoevsky and, um, you know, uh, authors like Cornell West. Be careful, West. Dostoevsky. You're getting, you're trying to get into hedge funds. <laughs> Maybe reading Crime and Punishment isn't the best idea. <laughs> right, right. Um, all right. So you had that idea of, you know, greater exploration um, within just you're, you, the things that you're consuming and interacting with, how did becoming a more active person, more specifically a very dedicated amateur <laughs> runner, how did that kind of fit into the mix? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I set out to run one marathon initially, and that was the goal. And, you know, I, I signed up for the Philadelphia Marathon, which is two weeks after New York City. And, and essentially, that was a plan B. That was if I fail in New York City and barring a, a catastrophic injury, I'm still already trained up and I could just run Philadelphia two weeks after. And after the New York City Marathon, I felt good. I felt, you know, enlightened. And I decided to just go ahead and run Philly after that. Well, then you must have been really well trained. Tell me about that first training cycle. Oh, I was, I was a, a notoriously an undertrained runner. Um, you know, the first couple years, actually the entire time, I developed this motto, I only run outside on race day. In fact, we should say that's literally your email address. I just typed right. it into I typed <laughs> it into my Gmail account. I'm like, wait, what is this long string of word letters here? Oh, I see what I see what we're saying. Yeah. So I, you know, I started training for the New York City half, which is in March. It's still cold in New York City. And I was training indoors at a gym around the corner from me. And so, you, you know, when it, the weather warmed up, I just continued to train at the gym. And I used my shorter runs as training. And I literally only ran outside when there was a race. And so I kind of just jokingly had that motto and just kind of continued on. But I was I was under trained for that marathon, for sure. And, you know, my my legs would tell you, you know, that I was definitely under trained um, after the marathon because I couldn't walk upstairs for at least a week and a half. So what? So what? Three days after <laughs> you're able to walk upstairs, you're like, sign me up again. Let's just do this again. Um, what? It's, it's interesting. It's an interesting sign-up technique, though. Though, if this goes wrong, I'm going to do it again two weeks later. Um, move. So, was there a a tipping point or paradigm shifting moment 
in your training leading up to this where not only were you kind of checking off a bucket list moment of doing a marathon for the first time, but all of a sudden you're putting in a rather extreme like plan B into the mix, um, which kind of makes it seem as though like things must have been progressing for you, not just from a fitness standpoint, but for a an interest standpoint. Well, I think that, you know, the the, the what really helped me run the New York City Marathon is one of the things that I did that was probably very great for my training is I, I, I started running Spartan races that first year. And those are just grueling. Um, and I, I, I ran a trifecta, um, which is like their shortest distance, their second longest distance, and then the, their longest distance, uh, which is a, a, they call it a sprint, a super and a beast and within a calendar year. And I ran this race in Killington, Vermont, which was just a beast, was is an understatement. I have I mean, seen this, that course. Yeah, I, my, I have seen that course when they've hosted it because I was actually up. Th- I've been up there several times in the summer in July when they host it. And I've never seen this many grown men and women crying that wasn't a funeral <laughs> in my life. <laughs> happy tears, Charles? <laughs> no, that, they were not happy tears. Um, these were tears that I've traveled all the way to Vermont and I failed. <laughs> the, that's what those tears were. Those were tears of 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 failure. Um, yeah. Gotcha. So those so the training for that and doing those races, you think kind of and I'm putting words in your mouth here. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Kind of lay the foundation from a strength perspective for you, not simply just an aerobic base, but also kind of building up your overall strength. I think it was really, uh, it was building up my overall like mental toughness. Oh, okay. Um, and because I felt like after I ran the Spartan Race Beast in Killington, Vermont in September, that I could probably run anything. Had you had those kind of experiences in the past of being tested in a physical endeavor that, at, while still, you know, obviously a test of your physical nature? was also simultaneously, maybe even more importantly, a test of your mental and emotional character? Never, never. I, you know, I played sports as a kid, but never anything formal or organized. Um, always just like street basketball, baseball, football, but ne- never anything that was so challenging and, and, and grueling that it would test not only my physical, but also my mental toughness on that level. Gotcha. All right. So you had you had a taste. You obviously <laughs> liked it, which was great. So all of a sudden you do two. So how did Philly go? You told us New York was a struggle, but you got through it. How did Philly go? Philly Philly was smooth. I think it was, you know, it's a nice it's an it was a nice race. It was nice to kind of sort of have the monkey off my back, you know, you know, it, you know, in New York or, or running your first marathon. There's the fear that you might not succeed. And now you don't have a marathon under your belt. Um, by the time I got to Philly two weeks later, I think the pressure of running the first marathon was off my back. So it was, it, you know, I was playing with house money at that point. Now, you've run a lot of marathons since. If someone's listening to this and they're saying, and they're saying to themselves, hey, I'm a master's runner. Look what Charles did. I'm going to do that, <laughs> man. Um, would you recommend the two marathons and two week model, or have you kind of look upon this endeavor a little differently with uh, with some history? 
Um, I, you know, I would not. I would consult your local physician. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, I, I would probably, you know, have a, you know, a, 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 a call or meeting with your doctor before you try to run two marathons in two weeks. Um, you know, I, you know, the, the next year in 2017, I ran 11 marathons in that calendar year. Um, the fall was 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 crazy because I ran five marathons back to back in ten weeks, and that that was pretty scary. I think um, I I don't think I would do that again. Were you trying to prove something to somebody yourself? There 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 needs to be a, a tremendous amount of drive in order to do something like this. Not just the races, but all the training that goes into this. Um, what, what what was going on there? Well, I think, you know, one thing I was definitely trying to prove something to myself. But at that point, when I decided to run all those marathons, I hadn't heard about the six world majors. And so the goal was to run 12 marathons in 12 months, November to November. And I, I didn't realize how crazy the goal was until I actually started to do it. And you know, as I started to run those marathons, by the time I got to Boston, I, you know, I was, I, I think I learned about the six world marathon majors at the Boston Expo. Um, I'm, you know, walking through the Expo and I'm seeing all the runners, you know, basically flashing their, their, their trophies, which were their Boston jackets. And, you know, I'm seeing all these jackets from, you know, last year and the, 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And, you know, even I saw a guy who had a 20 year old Boston Marathon jacket and he had embroidered all the years he'd run Boston on the jacket. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, I didn't realize how important Boston was until I got there. But the other thing I realized from the expo was there was this little bitty vendor off to the corner, secretly classified G13, six world marathon, Abbott world marathon majors. And so when I got over to that vendor, I started to notice that there were only six medals, six world marathon majors. I started talking to the vendor and they started to explain to me these six most important marathons in the world. So then after that, that became the next goal I wanted to accomplish in running. And was that Boston Marathon your second Abbott World Marathon major? Because you'd already run New York, correct? Right, right. That was the second. Gotcha. And how did you, so were you at that point, did you qualify for Boston or were you a um, a uh, a charity runner? Or did you, was there some other way you got into the race? No, yeah. So, you know, Boston was very interesting because I'm, I'm sure you and most of your listeners probably know it's the most difficult marathon to get into it probably in the world and 85 percent of the race course are qualifying runners and it's extremely challenging to qualify to run boston um another five percent are like elites and vips and then another the ten percent of the race course is our charity runners and even that is very challenging to get and the only, uh, I got into Boston by sheer luck. I ran New York City. I ran Philly. I'm at home after Philly. 
I'm watching the Boston Marathon bombing documentary and I'm just in tears for like two hours watching this. And at that moment, I decided I have to run Boston. And so I started to research the Boston Marathon. You know, I'm just thinking I could just buy my way into the race. Um, you can, but it'll be $10,000 to pay for the charity entry. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> At that point, you're just a major gift officer. You're just looking for a, yeah. a, a donation of one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and, and, and quickly I realized it was virtually impossible to even get a charity spot. And I spent the next two hours calling around all these charities, trying to get a spot. And I get on the phone and get a guy at Roxbury Community College. And I, I, you know, I tell him my story. I, I tell him why I'm on the phone with him. I tell him all the people I spoke to prior to him. And, I, you know, I, I, I told him I had been in tears for like the last two hours watching the documentary. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to give you my number. You still got to raise the money, but I'm going to give you my number. And that's how I got into Boston. Why? Why did he do that? <laughs> it was so hard. Why, what, was his, what was his rationale? It, uh, he was compelled by my story. He, was, felt that he, felt, he felt the truth coming out of my compassion, I think, for the, for the, for the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing um, that took place in 2013. I was, I was really moved by it, watching it, listening to the stories watching the faces of these innocent people who had basically, you know, were lucky enough to survive, but lost limbs, totally, you know, morale destroyed. And they were coming back to even run the race again with, you know, prosthetic legs and such. Right. And were you, so you were living in New York at that time? Right. Right. Now, it's been widely chronicled, especially in around that time, leading into, I don't know, maybe, I was going to say, and that was not quite correct, but still, back in that time, there was still, and I know it's kind of a shifting landscape, but um, a very active New York City road running club scene. And I know it's even bigger now, and, you know, depending on, you know, the, the shifting winds of, you know, popularity can kind of wax and wane, but at the same time, it is, it is a, a hub for a lot of dedicated amateur runners and some people who were former college runners and you see groups forming in all pockets of the city, not just in Manhattan. Um, and it's a really interesting thing to see from afar. And sometimes when I'm in the city, I'll, you know, see, see some of these people and some of these groups running in the park. And it, it really is a lot of fun uh, to be a part of it. Considering what you've said before about <laughs> running outside only on race day, were you ever pull to be part of that running community outside of what you were trying to do as an individual? Well, I, you know, I'd like to say I'd never be part of a group that would allow me as a member. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Was it Ronnie Dangerfield who had that line about country clubs? Yeah. 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 He's like, I'll, I'll, I would never, I would never join a country club that would have me as a member. It was like a classic. <laughs> right. Right. Um, no, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, it just wasn't on my radar. Um, you know, I was, you know, a young gunslinger and I was just like winging it the whole time. And so I never joined a club. Um, but I, you know, I did build a community of friendships along the way. Um, just people I met, you know, while running, um, you know, people I met volunteering for like New York road runners races. I've, I've gotten to New York city, 
you know, with the nine plus one run nine of their races and volunteer for one in the previous year, you get into the next year. Um, but I've made friends from running those races and volunteering for their races. Um, but I never joined the club. Gotcha. All right. So as you're progressing through this extremely taxing uh, (laughs) three year span where you put in just a ton of marathons and almost two dozen of them, um, what were some of your biggest takeaways of just the running scene? Because here you are, you're coming to it as someone who hasn't grown up with it. Right. So you mentioned before we talked about your your running background. There wasn't a lot there. So you're coming to it with a complete outsider perspective. But at the same time, you're diving in. I'm now going to start mixing metaphors, but you're really diving into the deep end here and being able to see a full immersion of what it's like. So as you're progressing through you know, your own training and your own racing beyond just your personal experience and learning and growing from your own challenges, what did you experience in just the running scene generally? Um, You know, going back into like what I would recommend for amateurs or newbies coming into running and considering running a marathon is join a club. Don't do it the way I did it, because I think there's a lot to be said by the camaraderie in the running community. It doesn't really matter of what walk of life you're coming from. 26.2 miles is going to be the same whether you're white, black, rich, poor, young, old. um, I think there's something interesting about the information that's shared amongst the community. And I think that, you know, if I had joined the club, I probably would have learned a lot more faster um, than I did being a, just a, a, a a lone wolf. Um, but in, in in my defense, I think if I joined the club, I probably wouldn't have done something crazy like running 19 They would have marathons. talked you out of all of this stuff. There's no way you would have done Absolutely. any of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> For sure. Right. This is it's like, it reminds me of like the, the David Goggins book where like no one ever reads the last chapter. And I've said this <laughs> literally a hundred times in this podcast. The last chapter is like the most revealing chapter because it's like, yep. the don't do any of the things that I talk about in this book. <laughs> Don't do right, any of them. Right, I was wrong right. every single step of the way. <laughs> and if I could do it all over again, I would do everything different. But no one ever reads that part. They're always just like, David Goggins is crazy. He's like, yeah, well, yeah. he admits it. You know, he talks yeah, about it at right, length. Right. Um, but it's, it's funny, right? Because at the same time, though, it's easy to say that. But like you just mentioned, you know, if you change that one element, like what other dominoes don't fall if all of a sudden you go into this um, and maybe a, a different a different protocol? So do you kind of savor the fact that you went into this maybe a little bit more recklessly than you would have if you were full of knowledge and experience? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and it, it also, it, it was a sort of a, a culmination of like many life experiences. I don't think if I, if I didn't enjoy watching documentaries, I wouldn't have watched the Boston Marathon documentary, um, which wouldn't have allowed me to run Boston. Um, if I didn't live in Rome, Italy and take advantage of um, just my knowledge of the of the city of the country, I probably wouldn't have picked Rome to run a marathon. And that was the most beautiful place of all the marathons I've run. That was the most beautiful marathon. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think it was a, you know, part of my life experiences, but also um, doing it the way I did it allowed me to sort of um, explore more and learn more 
and and be a lone wolf and and be a little crazy too. <laughs> For sure. And then you know, part of we should mention the the book that you're writing as part of the, the Tracksmith Fellowship, which. You mentioned to me offline this, you know, first of all, a book takes forever. And then once you finish it, it takes forever for it to come out. So um, we'll, we'll we'll definitely hype it up when it when it gets there. And as, as the book is approaching the finish line, we'll definitely, you know, be on the horn letting people know it's not happening this week, people. So yep. if you listen to this now, don't go on Amazon quite yet. But right. at the same time, I know that your your work isn't merely a exploration of like, hey, what's it like for Masters Runner to dive into the marathon deep end? That there are um, cultural and societal um, threads in there as well. Um, absolutely. Um, I think really the 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 catalyst for me is aspiring to run twelve marathons in in twelve months was the fact that when I ran New York City, I you know I I, I don't think culturally I noticed anything, but when I was in Philadelphia, it it dawned on me that. Every time I passed a black runner, they would sort of give me a, a, a casual nod. And, and that, you know, you know, culturally, I understood they were affirming my presence on the race course. And when I got home, I, I thought, wow, why were all these runners giving me the, the casual nod? I, you know, I don't I don't remember ever getting that in New York City, but one of the reasons was the race course is different. So in, in Philadelphia, there's this out and back. And so you're not just seeing the back of people's heads. So now you're getting the forward progress of the people who are ahead of you. And then once Wait, you, you were winning, point, you weren't winning. There are people ahead of you. No, <laughs> there are thousands of people ahead of me. <laughs> I just beat out that last runner, you know. You know, I, I didn't come in last. <laughs> I, 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 I cut you off. I know. I, I get that question from my kids every time I run a race, so I try to put it on other people occasionally. Like, Dad, did you win? No. And then they're like, they slow call oh, disinterested. I, I, I at least got that question once after each marathon. Did you win? <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So as you were saying, so you the out back nature of the course, you come face to face with some of the other runners. Yeah. And I, I so I noticed that there, there was something different about this race. And when I went home to sort of explore, uh, being the researcher I am, uh, I realized that there was something to it. And there was an issue with diversity in running, especially endurance and long distance running. And so my thought was to do something extraordinary to, to bring light into, um, the need for new stories and new adventures and, and, and diversity in running. Um, uh, you know, obviously my, my channel, my platform wasn't that big. Uh, you know, I was only announcing on Facebook that I was running these races, but essentially that was part of the reason I ran so many races. Got it. So was there a, a plan associated with it at first or was it kind of like you were kind of figuring out the plan as you were, you know, when you kind of had this motivation to do it for this larger endeavor, a larger, I guess not endeavor isn't the right word, but exposure for what's possible type feel to it. Um, but did you have kind of a grand plan associated with it or what was that, that process like? Yeah. You know, my, my plan was if I inspired one other black runner to run a marathon, one other black person to run a marathon, then my plan succeeded. And that was, that was the only plan is to try to inspire one new person 
to run a marathon, and and six of my friends ran marathons. There you go. So, so what's what? So why why even write the book? You already you already you already accomplished the goal. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, what about running? Is something that you wanted to bring to other people, other in, in this in this case, other black people, but at the same time, just people in general, in terms of why do you feel like running is beneficial for another person to be involved in? Uh, I think there's uh, many health benefits to running, and not necessarily ru- running. 26.2 miles, but I think, you know, running shorter distances, being consistent, um, thinking about your diet, thinking about your weight, thinking about, um, you know, regular appointments with your doctor. There's just something about running that inspires you to think, be enlightened and have your senses heightened on uh, uh, your health, your personal health. And I think that's the real importance of running. Yeah. And so you were, you worked previously as a financial advisor. Um, you said you, we talked about that since then, and you've kind of hinted at this, but now you are embarking on a different professional path and you're working at the Whitney. You're currently in, you know, at, at Columbia. That's where you're, you're recording this right now as part of your work, uh, in art, which is, you know, a, a very different path. Um, certainly some similarities to the financial world because you're basically in, in both professions. The goal is to, to be well-connected <laughs> with the wealthiest people possible. Um, right, but certainly there are right. many discrepancies between the two worlds as well. Absolutely. Um, if you look at the financial advisor world, you look at the art world, you look at the um, the running world, there are some similarities here in terms of maybe a lack of representation and that can mean a lot of different things, not just um, from a skin tone perspective. But there's, you know, in all of those worlds, they are kind of enclosed in certain ways. And maybe running is, is, is the most open of the three, frankly. But what's been what have you taken from some of your professional ventures um, and kind of used in your running life as you go along this path of trying to to bring more people in? Um, I might argue that running is just as closed as those other ventures. Um, All right. Just, just from, for. I'm not happy. I'm just, I want to hear yeah. the argument because I, yeah. I wasn't expecting you to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I might argue that because I think there's uh, the, 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 there's the general assumption that with a pair of sneakers and shorts and a t-shirt, anyone can go out and run and train and, and even, run marathons, but I think there's a, so there's a bit of privilege attached to the time it takes you to train first off. Um, and so I think, think there's a privilege attached to owning your time, the ability to, um, decide that with your free time, you're going to go out and train up to being able to run 20 miles to prepare yourself for a 26.2 mile race. Um, and if you look at like some of the marathons I've run, uh, London, Berlin, Rome, Boston, Chicago, Miami. So then there's the financial aspect comes into play because I have to get on a plane. I have to rent the hotel, uh, you know, an occasion I have to rent a car. You have to have a passport. Um, you have to understand the, you know, the, the the luxury of running in a place like Berlin, Germany, and aspire to do that first off. And if you have vacation time, want to spend it <laughs> in Berlin running a marathon <laughs> where all your other friends are 
you know, drinking beer, <laughs> at, you know, at Oktoberfest. Um, so, in, but in the art world, um, what I've noticed is there are many similarities that one might think that, you know, with the paintbrush and canvas and some paints, that you could go out and be a painter, and that's not necessarily true. Um, but the the area that I've tackled in the art world is the the own ownership of artwork, and and being an art collector. And so, you know, what 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 I realized after reading every single book on art collecting that there was a, a similarity between the voices that were attached to writing books about art collecting. And it was always about, you know, white collectors collecting the work of white artists that are in other white institutions, which, you know, I don't particularly have a problem with because I admire most of those artists that are being collected by these collectors. Um, the only issue that I did have is where, where was the story about a black collector who's collecting the work of black artists who, uh, um, you know, wants to preserve the culture of, of African-Americans and, and that community. And so that led me to write the book called The Black Market, A Guide to Art Collecting, which is a, basically a 101 for prospective and novice art collectors um, to just basically open up the hood and show the engine to those who may not have known about um, art collecting and things that one might need to know before going into art collecting. Yeah, I saw that book on your CV. I was like, that looks like a great book. Of course, it was two <laughs> days ago, so I haven't read it yet. But I was like, this looks like a great book to own. Everything you said before about um, everything required from a uh, not only to be a runner, because you know, everyone chooses to run different lengths and stuff like that. And, and and obviously the races you want to do is a choice. But at the same time, if you want to go to some of the best races for most people, that means that you have to do travel. And everything you mentioned was was absolutely right on the money. That, that's for sure. Um, and just the, the time associated with it and all of that, right? There's so many people who've come on the show who've experienced that, you know, whether they're single parents and things like that, of like, yeah, that gets, it gets tough, right? And it's like trying to figure it out. It can be really, really hard. So I appreciate you saying all of those things because I know we all experience our own challenges in micro form, you know, we're all end of one when it comes to this stuff. And, and even what happens in our life can be seasonal. Sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder. But um, a lot of what you said is, is it, it really string, really, um, you know, rings true. That's for sure. So I appreciate you you saying that. Um, and it is interesting to, to hear you kind of talking about your different areas <laughs> of your life and and how there are some similarities there for for endeavors that are at first glance seeming <laughs> wildly different, right? Like talking about the you know old master painters and then the Miami Marathon doesn't seem like a hand in glove fit when comparing right. and contrasting. But I can see um, how that's there. Absolutely. Um, so as you're progressing through the book, I know oftentimes you want to be well-versed in things that you're trying to write about and the whole writing process is gets really hard and tricky. We talked about this a little bit offline. Uh, we don't have to get into that process right now. But part of that is also understanding potentially um, what the audience is for the for the for the work. So how have you approached that question about who exactly you're writing for? Or do you have like 
like an avatar in your mind, like a specific kind of person or a group, or how do you approach the audience aspect of the work? Um, Yeah. So with this particular book, I think, you know, there's a huge market of people who enjoy memoirs. Um, I am one of those people. I've read many memoirs by famous and not very famous people. I just read Meb's 26 Marathons. Um, I read John Krakow's Into Thin Air. I've always aspired to climb Mount Everest. I probably won't ever do it, but it's nice to read his account. Um, So I think, you know, the the person who enjoys reading memoirs and stories that are real life um, would be part of the audience. Um, I think, obviously, the running community would be an audience. And and then people who want to understand the social and cultural context of of running marathons would be an audience. Absolutely. Um, I know you said you had a question for me before before we got on the podcast. Like before, yeah. I always ask everybody. I'm like, hey, before we get on, it goes part of my pre show spiel. I don't do the whole thing right now for everybody, but part of it is like, hey, do you have any questions for me before we get started? Usually, it's like, hey, you know, whatever. But you're like, I do have a question, but we want to save it for the show. So here, let's turn the tables. You have, you have a question for me? Let's hear it. Yeah, I wanted to hear about the, your intro, like the, the music that you chose for. Yeah, of course. So the person who wrote that, so the the lyricist on that track is Metaphysics, or he, he more commonly known as Meta P, who is actually something that I've known my whole life. So uh, his name is Sean Spardella. He actually was the, or is the younger brother of a friend of mine in high school. I've known Sean since he was very, very little. Um, so I was over his house all the time because, again, he, his older brother was one of my best friends. And as Sean was starting to take an interest in hip hop when he was very young, I, maybe fourth grade, I think he was a fifth, maybe fourth or fifth grade. He started taking an interest in hip hop. And then it, you know, when you're that age, like everything is like a phase. So you're just kind of like, all right, whatever. Um, but then a couple of years later, like he was getting more and more into it all the time. And, um, my best friend and I had spent a considerable amount of time and and money at that point um, building up our record collection. I had a bunch of hip hop records from like you know recently released stuff to some older stuff. And um, you know, we, yes, we were aware of CDs. I'm not that old. <laughs> This was not that long ago, but, um, but we did like, we did like, um, getting records and, and, uh, and playing those as well. So I had like a decent sized, um, at least I thought so record hip hop collection, but I was kind of trending out of that. Like I was hip hop, even now it was like the only music I listened to is hip hop, but, um, I, it was kind of trending out of the whole record scene, which is kind of buying DVDs and th- CDs at that point. Um, this was before digital music had really taken off. Um, and I basically gave it all to him. So I was like, you know, Sean, and, and he kept <laughs> going and going and going with it. And then um, after high school, he got this is well, this is really a longer answer than I thought I was going to give. Um, after high school, he actually was named like best lyricist in Rhode Island by a local uh, local magazine. And he's you know, put out several albums at this point and they're all he's really good. So I, you know, I, I have all of his albums and uh, I was putting out, I was kind of rehash, not rehashing the show, but I was kind of trying to formalize the, the intro early on. Uh, I was like, you know what? I want to get a song, but I want to pay, not pay, I don't want to pay like some, some person I never met for a song. Right, and I don't want right. to pick any of the general music either. 
I wonder if I can go look through Meta's albums and pick out something. So I, I actually called him up. I'm like, all right, I want something like the beginning of EPMD's Symphony 2000. Um, and he's like, all right, check out these songs. I'm like, all right, let's check them out. And then I uh, end up picking the one I picked. But that was the reason. But it also because I love because, you know, I've known Sean his whole life. Um I want I, I basically play more of his song in the intro than almost any podcast intro out there. Usually the intros are like five seconds of a song. Right, I play right, like a full 30 right, seconds right. to try to give uh, a little shout out to him and, and whatever. Uh, and also as a thank you. But that was that was the long answer to your short question. I appreciate the long answer and I'm sure Sean will appreciate it. Um, I'm actually going to go and look for his music because I thought, wow, this is really interesting, this intro. And, and and I was trying to figure out who was the artist and I couldn't figure it out. There you go. See, this, yeah. this is, hey, everybody, the last, when you listen to this podcast right now, if you listen all the way to the end, you're going to hear the exact people who produce the podcast and the name of the person who does the intro. But this is also why I probably should put that stuff in the beginning because most people don't listen to like the last seven seconds of the of the of the podcast usually you get to the end you're like okay what's next right i know that's what i do when i listen to a show so it's like probably the last is chapter a good reminder that I should probably, yeah a good reminder <laughs> that i should probably put it a little bit ahead of when i put it already right right awesome all right charles you are the man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I also want to give a shout out. You were recently on Tina Muir's show as well. So if you want to get more of Charles, head over there. Tina has a, a wonderful podcast and Charles is great over on that podcast as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Charles, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Wow, I just recorded the intro. And as you've already heard, man, it was hard. It's hard to get through it. My mind was a little scattered. The COVID brain uh, is uh, is hitting me a little bit, but I will say the symptoms have abated for the most part, which is uh, I'm very fortunate to that end. Um, it's not the same way for everybody. Got some long, got some good friends now who are who are battling long COVID, and my wife's journey with COVID is probably a little bit longer than mine is. We got around the same time. Um, she's still dealing with some symptoms, especially some some tiredness and stuff like that. But ultimately, I seem to be on the mend. Still got to kind of get that last five percent. Uh, but I'm feeling optimistic and hopefully we'll get there soon. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.